here with Dan Robinson. And um, the topic today is this uh, gripping tale of adventure that he wrote about. And I want to give too much of the game away at the beginning. Uh, I want to start by asking Dan why he thinks that this story got so much attention, even outside the, the crypto space. And, and that's my case, of course. I'm here uh, fascinated by the story. Uh, so before I, I, I actually give you my opinion of, uh, of why that's the case, uh, why do you think that happened? Why do you think so many people got, uh, and there's been responses, there's been a whole debate about this, why? So I think part of it is certainly that it's, uh, I think that a lot of the technical details are relatively obscure, but the story itself is basically follows the format of a heist movie combined with with a horror story. And so um, I think some of the, the feelings uh, involved in it, and I was very, I was very happy that these, that these feelings kind of got across and a lot of people described the piece uh, or reading the piece as being an unsettling experience, which is exactly what it felt like to live through. Um, I think those, those are sort of uh, easy to relate to. And like, I, you know, I, I grew up reading a lot of uh, kind of cypherpunk true crime, like nonfiction, um, like Kevin Mitnick um, or, or, or The Cuckoo's Egg is another story of like uh, hackers who are doing stuff that I have basically no context on and no way of understanding or being able to do myself. But you can just, you can follow the, the uh, experience of what it's like to sort of be engaged in this kind of thing. Almost like, it's like watching a chess mass match. Um, and I think those, those stories are just kind of fun to read. And this is, um, I was lucky enough to get to live one of those. Mm -hmm. Sort of nighttime tale of adventure because it took uh, it took place during nighttime at least in the where you were at the time. Now let me let me tell you a little bit yeah. of what I thought about this uh, and and why I was so interested in it. Well, first it's it's a sort of a gripping tale of adventure, and I guess you don't quite expect to find that in um, uh, when talking about Ethereum. Uh, and I think maybe many people reacted to your story. They were reacting to a sense that there's actually a dimension here that we've been missing. And I think that connects to very important points about Ethereum. That's why I got very interested in, 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 this, uh, in this story. Uh, we probably have a certain understanding of crypto as being hyper-rational, hyper-stable. Uh, and what you presented is actually a rather unstable environment with some elements of chaos, but also where action, choice, decision are very important. And there's some elements of a gain in the, in the story you described. I'm gonna ask you to describe the story, but as a sort of intro, uh, there's, uh, you, you try to move undetected uh, from uh, an opponent. Uh, and you know, there's game theory, but there's also adventure in a story. Uh, you quote, uh, of course, the reference there. And I think that's also an advantage that you have all these references available that perhaps not everyone in the crypto space does, but you quote uh, the famous book by uh, Liu Cixin, uh, The Dark Forest. And let me read before we turn to the story, how he describes the dark forest, because your point, uh, your larger point uh, is that um, the Ethereum mempool, the blockchain, but mostly the mempool, as I understand, uh, as I understand it, is a dark forest. Here's, here's how uh, Liu Cixin describes the dark forest. The universe is a dark forest. Every civilization is an armed hunter stalking through the trees like a ghost, gently pushing aside branches that block the path and trying to tread without sound. Even breeding is done with care. The hunter has to be careful because everywhere in the forest are stealthy hunters like him. If he finds another life, another hunter, angel, or a demon, 
a delicate infant to torturing old man, a fairy or a demigod, there's only one thing you can do, open fire and eliminate them. And this is what you found that night in the Ethereum mempool. Um, do you want to describe uh, briefly what happened? That's right. So I was in a situation where I realized that somebody had accidentally sent their money on Ethereum, about $12,000 worth, into a smart contract on Ethereum um, where they didn't know how to recover it. Um, but in fact, they or I or anyone else in the world could actually just go and pick up that money. It turned out they put it in a, in a um, into basically a safe that was wide open. And uh, the, no one had picked this up. There were, it had been about eight hours since, since this money had gone into this smart contract, but I, I, I could go in and just withdraw this money myself by sending a transaction to the smart contract. But if I did, I was worried because I'd heard about these, these uh, particular things before. I was worried that if I created this transaction and tried to pick up the money, someone would see that I was doing it and do it first. By trying to pick up this money, I'd, it would be like opening a box with Schrodinger's cat and I, I, would, I would end up uh, killing the cat. Um, and so I had to figure out a way to try to pick up this money in a way that nobody would notice uh, that I was doing it until after it had happened. Did you, how did you find out about, about the funds? Uh, did did the, the person who sent them there by mistake, uh, did they tell you or, or you could find just looking at the blockchain? How did that happen? So in this particular case, I was in a support channel for um, a protocol called Uniswap, which is, which is the smart contract where this money was accidentally sent to. And someone was asking about this, about this bug. And I realized soon after, after they'd asked about it, that actually there was this way to recover it, but that anyone could do it. So it was, you know, I think I actually do spend a lot of time in, um, in these kind of support channels and you'd be surprised how often there is, uh, uh, there's a story, not always, not always exactly like this, but there's, there's just interesting stories of what happens on the blockchain. And, uh, I think, I think it's, it's, you know, like every, every transaction almost tells like some, uh, some small drama. And so support is actually supporting people with these is actually really rewarding because often it's, it's solving a particular puzzle or it's, it's trying to like deduce what happened, um, in this, in this kind of strange world with weird physics. What I find fascinating is that a piece um, published um, in response to your uh, to your story, and that I'm going to link, uh, actually shows us the uh, the blockchain and when your transaction failed, and the transaction just before uh, by by this front running bots was successful. Uh, was it a different block? Uh, just a few seconds, right? Uh, that's what we're talking about here. That's how far right. So what so what happened was we had I I got a few great securities engineers together to come up with a plan to try to recover this money without, um, without alerting anyone else that I was doing it. And uh, ultimately that plan failed. So we submitted the transaction to try to recover the money. And this monster basically came up from the deep out, <laughs> of, the, out of this mempool and, and devoured us and, and, and created a transaction that, did, that took the money before we could get to it. Let me and get so, it. Yeah, yeah, it was only a matter of a, of a few seconds. Let me get to this idea of the monster. Uh, actually, when I when I linked to the story uh, at the time a month or a couple of months ago, I, I call it predators. Uh, but predator, the monster, uh, it's a very interesting image 
but uh, do you see this? How do you see this? Is this a sort of a, a, a struggle between uh, humans and machines? Uh, because there's something about uh, there's something of that in, in in this story, right? I think it's part of the appeal. You are basically fighting a bot, and part of the excitement that you describe so well in the story is about that. Is about actually beating a machine. No, right. Or in this case, losing to a machine. <laughs> right. But, uh, that, that, right. That, that's exactly it. And I think um, that's one of the things that makes Ethereum so fascinating to me is that um, a lot of what goes on on Ethereum is automated, much like what goes on in traditional financial markets today um, is mostly high frequency traders trading against each other. And so um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an inhuman environment. It's something where you know, you're not really thinking about psychology, you're thinking about how, how machines think. And to a machine, um, uh, doing something that would try to trick, uh, that would try to trick an ordinary human into, um, into thinking that this was an innocuous transaction, you can't think that way, you have to think like a machine. And the machine just sees what your transaction does and, what, and whether they can copy it. They're not like looking at, oh, is there, why would be the reason for a person to do this? Um, they, they can just run and simulate your transaction. And so all these strategies that we were trying to come up with to trick the machines ended up being useless because the machine, if we could get the money out, the machine could tell that we could get the money out because it's a deterministic environment. And so they could get it out first. So this, was, this is basically an intractable problem, um, at least in the long run, it's, it's likely to be. And, and very sophisticated bots, right? In one of the pieces I read about your story, um, the, the author actually concluded this was a highly generalized bot, that uh, it was the first time he was calling a burn function. So he had a certain ability to, let us say, improvise, uh, or is that excessive? But, but are they getting more sophisticated? Are they already very sophisticated, these, um, these monsters? So I, the, the way I heard about these monsters was I heard a fascinating story, a very similar story, although one where the, where the person won um, a year before. And so they've, they've been around for, for at least a year. I think, I think they are likely getting more sophisticated. I think they're still not as sophisticated as in theory they could be. Mm -hmm. once, they, once they reach that point, I think it's going to be impossible to do what we try to do, which is try to obfuscate the transaction by like splitting into multiple transactions and creating multiple contracts, like they'll be able to cut through all of that. And so the only solution is to, is to do, well, or one of the only solutions is to go directly to miners, which is actually what my colleague Sam Sun did in a follow-up post um, with a rescue that was a thousand times as much, it was $10 million and was actually successful. But, but that raises a few questions, right? Because, uh, you know, for an outsider like myself, the, the whole appeal of Ethereum was that it was going to be completely devoid of arbitrariness of, of human choice and decision. If now people can rely on their contacts, if they, if they, if they know a miner and, and can do something that others cannot, this is not pure Ethereum as we thought it would be. So there's a, there's a kind of a trade-off here, no? That's right. And it, it does mean that certain, yeah, certain entities have more power than others. And that, yeah, if, you, if you've got certain connections, you can, you can get um, preferential treatment in the, in the mempool, which in this particular case for like white hat hacks is a good thing, but in the general case is quite uh, uh, troubling. Quite troubling. And someone I, I, I talked with last night that I, as I was thinking about this, this podcast, he told me, well, you know, it's a good story, but in the end, this is just Wall Street. Uh, with one advantage, uh, with high frequency trading, but with one advantage that everything here is on the blockchain, it's open, it's transparent. 
So what you're describing, where you go directly to miners, starts to be a little more like actual real Wall Street. That's right. And I mean, this it's because of the transparency that people can see your your transactions and front run it. That's the reason we have this problem. And so you can you can get rid of some of the transparency. Um, but then, yeah, that that potentially also uh, comes with its own costs. I think the the lesson here being that you know it's it's not necessary. And blockchain people have known this for a while. Like privacy is a very important issue. Um, uh, but while like there's a lot of great things about the transparency of the blockchain, it obviously comes with some costs as well. Let me raise this before we finish. Let me raise some sort of uh, big questions about about the future and also ethical questions. Uh, you, you know, I read your story and I think it's sort of a window into what Ethereum could become as it becomes more and more generalized and more and more popular. So the world we're entering, if this truly becomes the economic network uh, li linking uh, mankind or humankind, uh, then there's a certain picture of the future here. And I'd be interested in hearing your opinion about that. Uh, first question is, this seems to be a dynamic model in the sense that the bots get better, there are responses, there are other bots. Uh, is there an equilibrium that we're going to reach? Or is, this, is there actually a history of Ethereum as this activity and interaction uh, produces potentially unexpected outcomes and a landscape that we can't quite predict? What is the model here of how this will evolve, particularly with decentralized exchanges? That's the first question. And, and the second question, uh, do you find this troubling? Is this a world that human beings can inhabit? Uh, and I'm not sure about the answer because, you know, in your story, in the end, the person made a very uh, basic mistake, right? Uh, he or she probably just made, a, made an error copying and pasting uh, on address. Uh, and, and why shouldn't you be punished for mistakes of this kind? Um, you are in, in the real world as well. So the, do, do you see your story as, as portraying, I think it was interpreted in this way by many people, a kind of a dystopian future, or is it actually not that dystopian in the end? Yeah. So to your first question, I think the current equilibrium that we're seeing is kind of an arms race between bots, but I think it will end ultimately, or the next step will be minor participation in this. So we talked about how miners can protect against these bots, but there's no reason they couldn't exploit the, uh, the same opportunities or exploit many more because they can arbitrarily reorder transactions. They can, um, they can censor transactions. They can actually do quite a lot to basically extract value from transactions on, uh, that they are including in the, in the chain. And, I think the equilibrium is inevitably going to get to that because in a proof of work blockchain, whatever miner can extract the most value from being the miner will be able to outcompete ones that can't. They can spend more on electricity. They can spend more on hardware um, to become a, to, to be a miner and they'll outcompete those like an honest miner. So that is, that's a big risk in my view is that in the future miners might end up extracting this kind of value themselves and therefore, and, even if most miners today are honest, the dishonest ones are going are gonna to outcompete the honest ones um, in this sort of dystopian future. So um, I'm very interested in, in ways to try to avoid that because I think that, that could cause a lot of issues for not just um, users of the chain, but also just of the stability of the chain itself and, uh, and potentially have it basically be captured by anyone who's, who's willing to pay, uh, pay the highest bidder. So that's, that's something that 
Um, me and I work at an investment firm called Paradigm, and I should mention that we're I'm on this. Uh, I'm representing my own views and not those of the of the firm. But we're invested in a couple projects that are um, thinking about ways to to avert that future. Mm-hmm. To your other question, I I do think. I don't think it's a it's a good world in which um, where somebody just making a making a small mistake um, results in them being uh, losing everything. I do think that this kind of pressure of being in this extraordinarily harsh environment does harden our systems. It's like a chaos monkey that um, says, you know, you're not going to be able to get away with just with lazy security practices or building a system um, that's insecure, but just like nobody's trying to steal from it. Because it's it's just one of the harshest security environments that there is, where anyone can just, for example, for a smart contract, read your code, or with a transaction in the mempool, just like look at your transaction. And the fact that we're seeing this kind of vanguard of attacks is causing people to really think about what the trust assumptions of their systems are. And I think that's great because ultimately, this kind of pressure to decentralize, pressure to make systems fairer, um, will result in better, hopefully, result in better systems. Um, whereas uh, and then, but then I think the, uh, my worry would be that it will result, uh, the alternative path is that it results in just more centralized system and just going back to, oh, let's trust a single, you know, let's trust a, a benevolent miner um, or benevolent dictator to basically bring order to this system. And that I think is, is our job as, um, as engineers to try to, to try to avoid. All right, final question. But I do think, I think the, the, yeah, I think the current environment of this sort of nasty, brutish and short life on, <laughs> on the blockchain is, is not sustainable. No, absolutely. It's, it's good that you quote that Hobbes uh, famous passage because, you know, I'm a political philosopher by training and reading your story. That's the world I saw. That's the world of the uh, state of nature. Uh, and obviously, I thought that was very interesting, which takes me to the very last question. There's sometimes a naive assumption about crypto, particularly going back to Bitcoin, that consensus is a relatively easy problem to solve and that has been solved by Bitcoin in, the fun- in, in a fundamental way. But your story and the whole discussion around it actually shows that consensus might be a trickier proposition, right? Because the mempool is by definition pre-consensus. Consensus has not been established yet. And there's a lot of action happening pre-consensus, which shows that consensus in crypto might turn out more difficult than some people hoped. Uh, is, this a, is this a good way to look at the question? Yeah, I think right now, for the past few years, we've been in kind of a blessed state where there wasn't, weren't people weren't actively exploiting these these opportunities um, that were created by the by the mempool, um, and that's true on Bitcoin. It's true on um, even more true on Ethereum. Um, I and that has sort of allowed a lot of applications to evolve. I think we're now seeing that this problem is actually as hard as we as people have were always thinking it was, and we just had gotten lucky or, or weren't um, under as much pressure in the early days, but now we're, we're faced with basically having to harden these solutions for privacy, for consensus security, for separating transaction, ordering and execution. Um, these are problems that people have been thinking about for a while and that blockchains, you know, despite the progress that has been made on them, I think it's, it's clear that they have, it hasn't yet been, been sufficiently solved. Dan, thank you so much. Uh, I think the details of the story, people can read about them, but I really enjoyed the discussion about the implications and and the consequences of what you talked about. And uh, at least from my point of view, really outside the space, uh, you you launched a fascinating debate. And thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.